And I'm back. That wasn't long. And I'm going to jump right into it because we got a lot to get into here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Would you open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as we continue in this series, Searching for Significance? Last week, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, very heartwarming. We talked about how there's many things in life that we cannot control, many questions that we'll never get the answers to, a lot of things that are straightened or crooked, I should say, in this world that cannot be straightened. And yet all this can be redeemed if it leads us to a place in our life of acknowledging God. When we acknowledge God, when we fear God, we open ourselves to the possibility of joy, enjoying this gift of a short life that He's given us. And we also open ourselves to the responsibility that we have to live our lives in view of His judgment of all things. So Ecclesiastes, I hope you're finding, is filled with surprises. Instead of it promoting this vision of life that is meaningless, I believe it's helping us peel back the layers of, you know, the illusory and passing parts of this life so that we can discover and so that we can uncover what truly matters, what is truly significant. And today we're going to uncover some wisdom concerning the power of human relationships, both for good and for evil. And I'm also, as an additional bonus, going to reveal how I went from a rabid and cloistered introvert to a pastor who openly shares on the stage and in personal relationships with all of you. That's a little bonus by the end. You're going to find how I went from, and I truly was, quite naturally in myself, a cloistered and rabid introvert, and now here I am today sharing on stage regularly 13 years into this experience of community with all of you. How did that happen? Well, there's going to be a lot in Ecclesiastes 4 that reveals why and how that occurred. Let's read together. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The verses will also be on the screen. Again, I looked, the teacher writes, and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken." Let's pause there this morning. You know, the teacher does something to begin this chapter that many of us spend considerable energy trying to avoid 
and that is reckoning with the plight of the oppressed. That is acknowledging those who are burdened by the abuse of someone else's power, whether that be all the way on the scale of citizens under a corrupt government, all the way down to you know, the experience of children with abusive parents. And my goodness, with dozens of world conflicts raging right now, in a national news cycle that is constantly aggregating our nation's most horrifying stories, boy, oh boy, do we ever have enough content to validate what the teacher saw thousands of years ago. But let's be honest, we prefer not to hear all that on a sunny Sunday morning, right? I could spend the next 10 minutes illustrating the plight of the oppressed. I could just go online for you know, 10 minutes to find that content for the next 10 minutes and show you photos and give you anecdotal stories. But we just don't want to deal with that. That's not the kind of stuff that we want to focus on when we've made our way all the way to this church gathering. It's a beautiful day. Andrew, you're really going to spoil it by giving attention to those things in the world. And we have that luxury, most of us do, of changing the channel when we want, of not clicking on the headline if it's unpleasant. Maybe some of us will go so far as to craft some sort of activist post on social media, and then we'll go on living our lives like we were before. But what if we didn't look away? What if we didn't turn away? The teacher has an unflinching gaze at the plight of those who are victims in this world and without power. And twice he says in verse 1, he notices he's the only one looking All had looked away from those people's tears. They had no comforter and no one who cared. When the teacher concludes, is those who have died are better than those living in the world. And even better is the one who never even had to live in this world because they never had to lay eyes on just how perverse and evil and wicked human beings can be. And I know many of you, when you read those verses about, you know, better are the dead than the living and better even still is the person who never even lived, you're, you're looking at your Bible and you're going, is this the Bible? Did somebody switch out the book? You know, let me look at the publisher. Did I get this right? And is this the right translation? Because we just don't think that that's something that the Bible would say. Now, allow me to clarify that this isn't an endorsement of death as an answer. And this isn't the only thing the teacher is going to say about human relationships in chapter 4. This is simply the teacher putting to words the only conceivable emotional response one can have when you empathize with victims of unbearable and unimaginable torture and pain. And the fact of the matter is, it is unbearable for them to experience it. Now, I know a great many Christians today who simply come out and enter the sort of pain I'm talking about with honesty. If they were there when Jesus was crying at the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11, like we see in John 11, Lazarus is dead, Jesus gets the news and he starts weeping. A great many Christians would run to Jesus' side very quickly and say, oh, wait, 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 God has a good plan in this. God can handle this. And Jesus would respond, yeah, I know. I am God. Now leave me alone and let me cry about it. Right? You know, we, but we have this impulse in all of us to sort of like distract ourselves from the darkness with what is sunny. We want to run to what is sunny when sometimes the world is just plain dark. 
According to the teacher, what's driving all that darkness, that human oppression and neglect in this world? Why are we doing this to ourselves? If you look at it, this is a man-made problem here, what we see in the first couple of verses. Why are we oppressing each other? Why are we not there to comfort those who are oppressed? Well, in verse 4, the teacher concludes that it is envy. It is self-interest that drive all the toil of the world. Everybody wants what other people have. It's that simple. I mean, think about it. Why do nations go to war? Why do nations even go to war? You know, <laughs> why is it that the rich get richer while the poor get poorer? Why is it that there is even such a thing as oppressor and oppressed? It's as simple as envy. Other people want more of what other people have, and they're going to take it for themselves. This motivator of toil and achievement is not just present on the scale of nations in, in the systemic injustices that we see in the world, but it's also common to us on the level of just Orange County. Isn't this where we see a lot of the work and toil going and being fueled by this, this dynamic of envy. I mean, I live next to a, a very, very nice private school that's so expensive, I can't even look at it. it. costs too much to look at. I try to avert my gaze every time I pass by it. And years ago, I would see a couple Tesla SUVs for drop-off and pick-up at this very nice private school. And and now, years later, it is uh, the autopilot parade. They're all Tesla SUVs. But recently, I saw a change. I saw a change. I noticed a few Rivians in the group. And they're growing. The population of Rivians is growing. I'll tell you what, pretty soon, it is going to be a parade of that two-tone, beautiful color that they put on these things because of envy. We want it. You know, we didn't know we wanted it until we saw somebody else with it. And maybe one day if we get it, we can become the envy of others. Maybe they'll want to be us and have what we have. Instagram and all their forms of social media are the tools to feed this envy on a scale unknown in all previous generations. At least that's my thinking. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. If, if Instagram is or isn't a tool of envy. I mean, correct me. If you guys are actually sitting on there and you're just strolling through celebrating the achievements and the successes of other people endlessly, is that what you're doing? I want to know. I'm not on there any longer. It's been a little bit. But, I mean, you tell me. Is that what you do? Are you on there and you're scrolling through and you're like, man, I'm so happy for this person that they get to spend three hours a day in the gym and have that 12-pack. That's so satisfying for me to acknowledge that they have a 12-pack. I didn't, I mean, I used to think a six-pack was the max amount of pack. But I'm so happy to know that if you have three hours a day in the gym, you can create a 12-pack. I'm feeling so great right now. Is that what happens? You know, are you, are you scrolling through and you're looking and you're seeing people, oh, I'm so happy for this person that they're getting to travel, and that they're in all these places I've never been to, and this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity while I sit on this couch. It's so gratifying to view all that. So gratifying to see them all gathered together with all their friends, smiling, having the best time I think anyone's ever had at that event I wasn't invited to. I'm enjoying myself so much, I think I'm going to finish this Ben & Jerry's all by myself. 
I'm enjoying this so much. Never in history have you and I been able to constantly see what we don't have and relentlessly show what we do to a more expansive and captive audience than today. I mean, I know we look back at previous generations and we wonder things about their life and experience. Like, how did they ever get by with a horse and buggy? How did they do that? You know, we've been watching a lot of Little House on the Prairie in my house. The original. That's right, good, wholesome American programming from the 60s and 70s or something like that. I paid 15 bucks on Amazon to get the first season and, man, it's wholesome. I'm a little bit afraid that somebody's going to tell me what was deficient about it now in the modern mindset, and I've created some sort of cardinal error or sin by watching it. I don't know what's all in the seasons, but we're enjoying it right now. But they're getting around in horse and buggy, and you look at the carriage, and they're coming out west with the horses and the wooden wheels. You say, how do they even do that? How do they even get around? But, you know, I look at my parents' generation, and without the tools of technology and social media, I wonder, how did they even envy each other? How do they even want what each other has without these tools today? But, you know, envy they did, and that's a fixture of human society. It's been going on for thousands of years, and the book of Ecclesiastes proves that very fact. So what's the solution for us? How do we exit this train of unchecked envy and oppression and toil and human achievement? Well, the teacher responds with wisdom in verses 5 and 6. He says, fools twiddle their thumbs. That's how I would say it. So come to a place of ruin, meaning the answer is not to go to the extreme and just give up everything and do nothing and just kick back because you won't have anything to give to anybody else and you definitely won't even be able to provide for yourself. So fools sit around and they don't do anything in response to all the toil and achievement of the world. But better is the middle way. One handful of tranquility or rest and two handfuls of toil and a chasing after the wind. So the point is we all need to work. There's a place for labor and toil in all of our lives, but not in that unchecked hunger for gain. You'll wear yourself out when you're led by all your wants, and you'll wear out everybody else that is connected to you. Understand, whenever you purchase that new model year vehicle, that there's another new model year that's coming. Anytime you finally arrive at that goal, oh, we bought our house, you know, carry them through the threshold, ah, and then no, it's going to need repairs. You're going to need to remodel that sucker. You know, understand that when you finally work up the courage and you feel satisfied looking at yourself in the mirror wearing those skinny jeans, jeans are going to start getting wider all over again, and they're out of style, right? Quit chasing the wind, grasping for something you cannot hold. When we live in perpetual want, we ensure that we will never get. When have you satisfied your want by getting? Every time you got what you wanted, you always wanted more. We're always going to want some more. So instead, take stock of your short life and rest in the gifts of God in proportion to your work. Turn off Instagram. And let me tell you something you'll never hear in corporate America. This is a cardinal sin. Work less. Work less is God's word for some of you this morning. That's what you came here to hear. God wants to get through to you, you who has two handfuls of toil, and he wants to tell you something very simple. Work less. 
Now, if you're not convinced by that advice or that two handfuls of toil is just as foolish as the guy who navel gazes, we've got a case study here in verse 8. And this is the classic American man. What a hero, right? Busting his rear to get ahead, but the line keeps on moving ahead of him. He's on the treadmill, and the faster he runs, the faster the ground moves underneath him in the opposite direction as his wants grow in proportion to what he gets. And in this case study, this man doesn't even have a soul to share it all with. He doesn't have a brother. He doesn't have a son. Nobody who he's even going to pass it on to. And of course, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he would just say, well, it doesn't even matter if he passes it on. He's going to pass right through that person's hands as well. But it's just there as an addition in the story to show us just how absurd this man's way of life is. And he finally asks himself, He pauses for a second. Maybe he actually takes up a handful of rest and tranquility long enough to critically examine what he's doing with his life. And he says, why? For whom am I working so hard, toiling so much? For me? I'm killing me for me? Why am I doing this? This doesn't make any sense. And so many today in Orange County and across the world will sacrifice their friends. They'll sacrifice participation with any form of church community. They'll sacrifice being present parents. They'll sacrifice a marriage just to get wealth. To spend it on whom at the end of the day? And this is normal behavior in our world. Remember this quote I gave you from Mr. Wonderful, the business investor of Shark Tank fame? Kevin O'Leary, I know I used it like a year ago, but it's still so good because it's still so bad. I couldn't help myself. So just take this as your annual reminder of what this half a billionaire said on Twitter in the year 2021. He said, you may lose your wife. Now you're starting to remember what he said, right? You may lose your dog. (gasps) How dare he? This is Orange County. We love our pets more than anything. Your mother may hate you. None of those things matter. What matters is that you achieve success and become free. Then you can do whatever you like. I see this man had a lot to reflect on during the year 2020, during our time of distancing. You know, that was a time to kind of take stock, see what really matters in life. And this is what he emerged with in 2021. That guy still has his profile picture you know, he's holding these two, you know, luxury watches over his eyes that no one cares about. That's his profile picture, this half a billionaire. And this is his version of freedom, which is the most epic vision of slavery I've ever heard. This is the truest representation, the purest representation of the voice of corporate America. And it is the voice of Satan himself. Now, just as the teacher suggested a wiser way to work by checking our envy, by keeping our envy in check, by taking up a handful of God's peace, tranquility, and rest, so we also suggest a better way when it comes to human relationships than what Mr. Wonderful gives us. Okay, and if you understand chapter 4, you understand the whole thing, like I said at the outset, has been about human relationships. You know, up till now, it's been all the negative side. One person oppressing someone else. No one having the space or empathy or compassion to comfort those who are being oppressed. You know, it it has to do with somebody envying someone else and that driving all their work life to achieve what someone else has so they can become someone other people want to be. 
You know, it comes down to this person who's working themselves to the bone and for no other person in their life and for no godly reason whatsoever. Now the teacher moves us to show the benefits of interdependence and community as opposed to independence and a life of self-interest. And he does so. He shows us the benefits of interdependence and community in a few short, simple analogies. Verse 9, he says, when two are together, they produce a better return. Now, at this stage of my life, I'm in the midst of remodeling a kitchen. And uh, it's because it was flooded and uh, insurance paid out. And what insurance paid is enough for three kitchens if I do it myself. And I'm going to need that money for three kitchens because every bit of work I'm doing in Ecclesiastes style, I realize will be flooded again. It'll all be wrecked again at some point. So I'm taking it up on myself and I'm doing a lot of Home Depot trips. And I love Home Depot. I love the Home Depot off Magnolia. I should go on Google and give it five stars right now, but I don't rate anything. But if I did rate things, I would rate it five stars because that is the most helpful group of people I've ever met. Every time I'm in Home Depot, I'm asked five times, do you need help with that? Do you need any help with that? What's my answer every single time? No. You're offending me. No, I don't need help. I'm a self-made man. I'm self-reliant. I'm building my own kitchen. I don't need your help. And the truth is, you know, I go in there, I'm going to get sheets of drywall. You know, these things are big, they're heavy, they're awkward. I'm loading them on the tray, I'm loading them in the truck, and all I get asked three times, you know, to stop my madness. Do you need help? And every time I'm saying, no, I don't need your help. And I'm also saying, though I don't realize it, no, I don't need that extra 20 minutes I would have saved. I'm also saying, no, I don't need an unmarred sheet of drywall because I drop them on the corners and bust every corner off. I throw them in the truck bed, and they always split in two because I'm doing it myself. Uh, every time I'm saying, no, I don't need your help, I'm also saying, no, I don't need a pain-free back in the morning. I got this myself, right? What is that in me that has that instinct to say, I got it? When two are better when they work together, they get a better return on their labor. Verse 10, when one falls, there's someone to help them up. Now, I never needed this when I was younger. I didn't understand this. But, but as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm starting to realize, like, sometimes now if you fall, you don't get up on your own. You need help. I was thinking about this. It reminded me of something when I was a young kid. I used to laugh at this infomercial all the time when I was little. There was this infomercial, and this is the sin in me. Uh, it, was, it was a sweet uh, elderly lady, and she'd fall over in her house, and then she'd say, help! I've fallen and I can't get up. And that was the infomercial. And there's this lady calling out for help. She'd fallen and she couldn't get up. And I repeated that all the time as a five-year-old. <laughs> you know, it's about this button that they're supposed to press that when no one can hear them, the message gets to someone. But now I'm starting to realize I'm going to be that person. It's not funny anymore. I'm actually going to get to a stage in my life, Lord willing, where I'm going to fall and I'm not going to be able to get up. I'm going to need the button, or I'm going to need someone to hear me, me with an earshot. You know, and we all fall. It's an analogy. It's a simple analogy for the things that we can't do for ourselves. You know, we, we get into this situation, oh, i got to be at this appointment, but I'm also entrusted with the child care, you know, my kids. I can't get there because i got my kids. What do I do? You know, I just missed out on the appointment? No, man, I need somebody else 
You know, you get to the end of the baking recipe, it's simple things, you know, and you didn't have an egg. You mixed everything up, but you didn't have the egg. You know, what are you going to do? You can't do it in yourself. You've got to call out for somebody else who has the extra egg. Man, that sure makes it easier. But this happens on a larger scale. You know, this happens when we lose our job and we can't pay for rent any longer. This happens when we go through loss and pain in a place of grief. We're all going to fall, but do we have someone there to help pick us back up? Verse 11, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how could someone keep warm alone? You're like, well, I don't do this with my friends. <laughs> well, if you were camped out 2,000 years ago without your modern down REI sleeping bag, and the choices are you're going to freeze through the night or you're going to keep warm through the night, let me tell you something. You're going to be drawing straws for who's big spoon and little spoon. You're going to be all about it. Because the two who keep warm together, they actually live through that night. Verse 12, if you're cornered on the street, do you want to be alone or do you want to have your tag team partner? Top to bottom, community, relationships, friendships exponentially increase our output. They render aid that we can't render to ourselves. They harness our latent potential and bring strength and a solid defense against opposition. The benefits of multiple people working together are apparent. It's obvious. It's like, duh, it's better. But it's actually mind-blowing on a scientific level what it means when we come together. Enter verse 13. He says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And now this individual is not a physics major, but understood something that science and manufacturing are still employing on a nano level today. I, I mean, it makes me think of the... the the lines I use, the tie-downs I use in my, in my truck, and when I ran out of gas on Christmas Eve, I ran out of gas. I was in the middle of the road, and uh, I, I didn't have my phone charger with me. My phone is dead. It's the afternoon, in the middle of the road. Everybody's on the road because it's Christmas Eve. Everybody's doing their shopping, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm stuck. I could say to myself, I got this, right? I don't need anybody else to get out of the truck, start pushing a 7,000-pound truck on a flat road. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm so fortunate that there was someone there to see me, that there was someone who was actually a good Samaritan, could notice up ahead, that guy's in trouble, pulls in front of me, and he goes, do you have anything I can tow you with? Well, I got these little cheap $10 toe straps from Home Depot, and I promise I'm not getting paid for this endorsement today. I'm not getting anything back. I just genuinely had them. And they, you know, strap up these little toe straps, tiny. They're probably an inch thick. And he pulls a 7,000-pound truck a mile to the gas station so that I can fill up with gas. Now, if you were to unravel those lines, you'd look at the individual fibers. You'd say, what is that? Individual fiber, you can't even use that for a fishing line. It'd snap instantly. But you weave that together. You bind it together. And suddenly, it has this working strength. Suddenly, it has this breaking strength that's remarkable. This is the same technology behind Kevlar, the stuff they make bulletproof vests out of. I looked up what is an official definition of what Kevlar is, and on their website they say it's a heat-resistant para-aramid synthetic fiber with a molecular structure of many interchain links cross-linked with hydrogen bonds. It's a bunch of strings. That's what it is. That's layman's terms. A bunch of strings that together create a material ten times stronger than steel, and it can stop a bullet. But one fiber by itself couldn't hold up to a gentle breeze. And it wouldn't even be visible by the human eye. Friends, we are that single fiber. 
finding our strength in the interconnected bonds that God means for us to enjoy with each other. You know, stepping back and taking in this whole chapter, if you want an image of hell on earth, an existence that it would be better to be dead than alive in, it would be better if you never even existed at all. You don't need to jump to an image of God's judgment. You don't need to jump to an image of a lake of unquenchable fire. It's right here in Ecclesiastes 4. It's a world of human beings who take advantage of each other. We don't have the space for empathy or compassion, who are only driven by self-interest. That's hell. And our world looks that way when our worlds look that way. Our world around us looks that way as an aggregate of all the individual stories of all our worlds that look that way. Why? What are you working for in this short life where everything is a vapor and you can't even keep the things that you gain along the way? What are you toiling for if it isn't going to be shared, if it isn't about other people? It's a miserable business. Jesus says in the parable of the shrewd manager, he says, if you can't be trusted with worldly wealth, who's going to entrust to you true riches, eternal riches, heavenly riches? And he gives us this recipe in Luke chapter 16, verse 9. He says, use your worldly wealth to make friends so that when it is gone, and that's the point of Ecclesiastes many times, guys, it's all going to go. It is very temporary. You can't keep it. He says, use your worldly wealth to make friends so that when it is gone, because it's temporary, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Meaning if you hoard your resources, the fruit of your time and your labors and your achievements, all that is going to waste away. It passes. But if you leverage this for souls... And for the building up of community around you, you turn it into something eternal. Two are better than one. And three is even better than that, says Ecclesiastes 4. And when we all come together in the fear and love of God, truly remarkable things are possible among us. I want to finish with a couple pastoral thoughts. Responding to this call. Man, it's calling us into interdependence. It's calling us into community. But I was thinking to myself... What would keep many of you from following through on Ecclesiastes 4? Maybe you already have a degree of interdependence and community in your life, but how could you leverage that even more? How could you lean into that even more? And some of you, you don't even have real expression of community or interdependence in your life. What's keeping you back from that? I'm going to name four things here and respond to it. First of all, it's that I've got this mentality. Very classic American self-made person mentality. Self-reliance. You and I are robbing ourselves when we rely on ourselves. But we think that's the strong way. That's the strong way. When I say, I got this, let me wreck that drywall by myself. I got this. Let me show you how inconvenient I can make this for myself. That's the strong way. Right? I've told you guys many times. Five years of marriage. That beautiful woman over there, five years in, every day I'm saying, I got this. I got this. I got this. I got this. I got this, man keep telling myself that. And I was wrong the whole way. I didn't got that. I didn't got that. I wasn't doing good. I wasn't living well. I wasn't a great husband. So what's the stronger position? The person who can admit I don't got this and get some help. I went to a counselor. I'd fallen and I couldn't get up. I needed someone to pick me up, right? I needed to rely on somebody else. Is that weaker? Then the other person who's stronger says, I got this, I got this, and they lose it all. Which one's the stronger position? No, I don't got this. 
When we say, I've got this, that's a hard posture of pride because you want to achieve it. Oh, God opposes the proud. That's a theme in the scriptures. You say you got this, watch yourself get knocked down a few notches to the point you don't got this. And you got to rely on God and you got to rely on other people. When we got this, man, that's when God gets the credit for things. It goes so far beyond us, and we're capable of so much more. That's why as branches, when we do outreach in the community, we don't do it in branches' name. We don't want to say, I got this. We do it through Serve City, the collaboration of churches, because we believe we've got this together as the Christians in order to give Jesus fame, not give any individual church fame. So we've got to change our whole mentality not just on the corporate level of the church, but on the personal level. Where you think you've got this, stop saying it. Change it into we've got this. Number two, what would keep you from community? Well, you've been hurt before, and everybody's been hurt. And yes, human beings can make a hell out of human relationships. No doubt, Ecclesiastes 4 tells us. But as much as you remind yourself that you've been hurt by people, I want to remind you, you've been helped by people too. Remember that. So many people use this blanket generalization of, oh, I had this experience at the church. The church has hurt me. People have hurt me. And it's this broad generalization that keeps them from engaging in community and interdependence. Guys, it's not just this broad thing. The whole church has hurt you. You can boil that down. And behind all those broad generalizations are individual faces. There are people who have hurt you, who've come to represent people in general, or who've come to represent the church. But I bet you boil it down in your own life and you can also see many faces who have helped you. Many faces who picked you up when you were down. Many individuals who kept you warm. So just because you've been hurt, don't use that as an excuse to not be the next person, to not engage the church again. Because just as much as there might be another hurt around the corner, there is also a new help. There is also a new help. What's another thing that might keep you from community or greater interdependence? You might say, well, it's not my personality. Guys, community does not come with a personality prerequisite. Let me say it another way. It's not just extroverts that give off body heat. You all give off body heat. It's not about personality, and you all are hardwired for the benefit of when you come together with somebody else. You know, but you might be hardwired with those instincts to tell you, man, you know, I'm going to keep my profile low. I'm not going to share what's actually going on in my life. I'm not going to ask for help when I need it. You might have those instincts. Guess what? Pure and classic introvert right here. I'm going to figure it out myself. I'm going to pull from my own resources. Everything in me says, don't go to the gathering. Everything in me says, don't open your mouth. Everything says, don't share what you're actually going through or who you are. That was my instincts. Guys, we need to stop listening to our instincts when they don't conform to the Word of God. Do you understand? It says that we're going to go through transformation as we follow Jesus. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. No longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have a pattern. We're patterned by the world. We're patterned by our experiences. And our instincts try to keep us in line with that pattern. It's what we know. It's about preserving who we've been. This is what I do. I don't share. I don't go into these kinds of places. It's scary for me. But your instincts do not indicate who God wants you to become. And if you're always listening to your instincts and the pattern of the past, you will never experience transformation in who God wants you to be. How do you think I ended up on a stage this morning preaching to a room full of people 
and talking about things like five years of failed marriage. Does that me following my instincts? Or is that me seeing what God is calling me to in the scriptures and saying, I'm going to walk in it even if it feels awkward because he is transforming and conforming my personality and my way of living to the way of Christ. The final reason we might reject community or interdependence is because of envy. Maybe you're holding out for some special people. Not just anybody. You don't want just run-of-the-mill people. The only way you're going to rely on somebody else is if they really stand out. You want to be with the desirable people, and you envy that. You want that. Sounds like a healthy way to approach relationships. In the church, guys, there are no special people, nor are there people who are more desirable than other people. There's just people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Paul says, You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. You're all included. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And there are other parts around you that it doesn't matter. They're more special, less. They're a part of the body of Christ. They're part of it, and you're part of it. And they need you, and you need them. And if you're holding out for the special people, you're going to be holding out a long time, and you're going to miss out on the enjoyment and the opportunity in front of you to experience the relationships God has gifted you with. Stop wanting friends you don't have and start valuing and enjoying the ones you do. Let's step into this call. So many invitations here, so many challenges. Let's receive it in prayer. Either to step into community, to step into a life of interdependence, or to grow in it. I don't care how far you walk down that road, there's still another step you can take to offering more of your heart and your life to those around you and receiving the heart and life of those around you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just know we're surrounded in a culture where so many people are being driven by their own self-interests and there's so much toil and work and labor and everyone's exhausted and they don't even know what they're working for, just more stuff, just so that they can want more stuff. And it's not for anyone and it's not for any godly or eternal purpose and we can just get sucked right into it with everyone else. And Lord, I thank you for the reminder this morning that we're supposed to take up a handful of tranquility and rest. We're supposed to uh, take on the peace that you provide, the perspective and wisdom that you provide, even as we continue to work. Lord, help us to keep our envy in check. Help us to turn off Instagram. Help us to stop following the corporate line. Help us to carve out a different path that isn't just about us and taking from someone else or wanting to be someone that others would like to be. God, help us to step into true community and interdependence, to have the compassion and the empathy to see those who are hurting around us and to respond, to be the person who picks someone else up, to be the person who's picked up, to be the person who quits saying, I've got this, I've got this, I'm going to do it on my own, to now being able to say, man, I pray for other people, I care for other people, I can be cared for. God, you want me to be cared for. I'm going to be stronger if I labor with someone else. I'm going to get a better return than if I just did it alone. Lord, we're all made for this. We're all hardwired for relationships. It's so clear, and yet so many of us live so isolated. We have these instincts, this pattern of the world that says we've got to hide away. No one's going to be able to value us. No one's actually going to care for us. That's a lie. That's not true. Lord, you're transforming us by the renewing of our minds, 
as much as we've been hurt by people, we've been helped. And we're called to be a help. This life is about preparing for eternal dwellings, not living for the stuff that's going to fade away. So Lord, reveal to us what's keeping us from community. What's a roadblock in our relationships right now? What's, what's stalling that interdependence that's keeping us weak instead of enabling us to be strong. Lord, would you reveal that to my brothers and sisters this morning? And I just invite you to pray into that for a few moments. Maybe it's one of the things I said. Maybe it's just you're working too much. The message, you need to work less. I don't know what it is. Lord, speak this morning. to be unless we rely on each other. You made us the parts of your body. You said that no one part is fulfilled in itself. It needs to be with the other parts and the inner working is what builds us up and strengthens us. So Lord, would you strengthen the bonds in this church community this morning? Would you weave those fibers together? Would you create something of remarkable strength that's more than we can imagine as we come under your leadership, as we acknowledge the principles of your scriptures, as we come under the fear and love of you and express that through our love of one another. Lord, strengthen those bonds. Lead us to community. Lead us against, maybe in some cases, against our instincts so that we might experience transformation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.